The scripture reading for this morning will be taken from 1 Peter 1, the verses 22 to 2, verse 3. We are continuing working our way through the first epistle of Peter here. 1 Peter 1, verse 22 to chapter 2, verse 3. And you'll be able to find that on page 1391 of your pew Bible. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is like grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flowers falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious so far. As our text today, we'll be focusing on the first two verses of our passage there. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God which lives and abides forever. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in 1942, the author Lloyd Douglas wrote a well-known work of fiction about the conversion of a Roman centurion called Marcellus. In letters that this centurion wrote to his fiancée, Diana, in Rome, he told her about Jesus' teachings, about his miracles, and about his crucifixion and then his resurrection. Having written about all that, he finally told her he had decided to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. In her letter of response, Diana said, What I feared is that it might affect you. It is a beautiful story. Let it remain so. We don't have to do anything about it, do we? It's a telling question, isn't it? We don't have to do anything about it, do we? But we do. Christians all throughout history knew that they couldn't stand quietly by having been born again into a living hope, which is to say, having been converted to Christ, they had to stand firm. They had to stand for their Lord and Savior. This changed their lives. It changed their interactions with those who were around them. And it let them approach life in a whole new way. Is this true for you as well? 
What role does the Word of God play in your lives and in your homes? How much time do you spend in it? How much priority do you give it? Do you live supported and encouraged by its truth? Do you live in obedience to its authority? Or is your response, we don't have to do anything about it, do we? We'll examine ourselves according to the mirror of God's Word in our passage today under the following theme and points. Born again through the living and abiding Word. And we'll see, first of all, the source of rebirth. Second, the instrument of rebirth. And third, the result of rebirth. One of the main truths of Scripture that Reformed Christians have been pointing out since the days of the Reformation swept across Europe in the 16th century is the recognition that God is sovereign. He is ruler over all. And that includes Him being the one who rules and directs us with regards to our salvation. He is the one who gathers, who defends, and who preserves His church. He is the one who transforms His people. We can see this already early on in the writings of men like the prophet Ezekiel. It is God who takes out our heart of stone and who replaces it with a heart of flesh. This is a word picture of the conversion that is spoken of throughout Scripture. It means that God is the one who makes us capable of loving Him and of following Him. After our fall into sin under the first parents of humanity, Adam and Eve, all mankind is in rebellion against God. We are unable to turn our hearts to Him of our own accord. Pridefully stuck in our blindness, our sinful nature wants to go the other way. Hence the picture of our hearts being as stone. For us to return to God, it requires radical action on His part, turning our hearts to flesh so that we can truly live for Him and love Him. It's a recognition of the extreme grace of God that while we are enemies, God would reach out to us and lay claim on us. God would bring us from death to life. And He is responsible for having us live for Him, follow Him, and obey Him every step of the way. It's in this that we find our rebirth. It's in this that that language comes from. And yet, as we come into our passage today and we look at the opening words here, we read, since you have purified your souls. Now, there are those who read this and they immediately jump on that and they say, see, we need to contribute something. If not for the will cooperating with the grace of God, we'll get nowhere. We do something. We need to look within ourselves for our salvation in addition to the work of God. Is that line of thinking right? Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, does it all ride on us? Well, look at what immediately follows in our passage here. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. 
It's through the power of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that we do obey the truth. It's all God. It's God who is the driving force behind our salvation from start to finish. And you can see that right from the beginning of Paul's letter here. First, as we open our passage, we have to ask ourselves, we have to consider who is the Apostle Paul writing to? Well, look at verses 1 to 2 here. Sorry, the Apostle Peter. Look at the verses 1 to 2 here. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter here is writing to those who are saints. They are believers, chosen in God, being sanctified by the Spirit, which means being made holy, being set apart and transformed day by day for obedience and washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. The purification that Peter talks about in the later verses of our text is not the same as this purifying work which is done by Christ. It's not a purification which makes ourselves ceremonially and legally righteous before God. And it's an important foundation to lay as we look towards the Christian life, towards the transforming work of God in the Christian life. We need to recognize that the work of God within our lives is already done when it comes to our salvation. For those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, that foundation was already laid. It's only on the foundation of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone that we are right before God. Peter is writing to Christians. Peter is writing to people who are already believers by the grace of God. Their salvation has already been bought with the blood of Christ. And their faith is already given to them as a gift worked in their heart by the Spirit. They have already been, as we read in verse 23, born again to a new life in Christ. So the purification that we are looking at in our lives is not one which needs to add something to our salvation. The Canons of Dort summarizes this idea well in Article 12 of Chapter 3-4, where we read there, the will so renewed is not only acted upon and moved by God, but acted upon by God, the will itself also acts. Therefore, man himself is rightly said to believe and to repent through the grace he has received. Man himself is rightly said to repent and to believe. That repentance and turning away from sin in obedience to the law is man's purifying himself. But all of that is traced back at its root to God's taking the will of someone who has already been saved through Jesus Christ and renewing it so that God makes, so that man works to become what God has already made him to be. As Titus writes in Titus 2, verses 13 to 14, Christians are those who are looking for the blessed hope 
and glorious appearance of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. It's a people who are zealous for good works and eager to leave behind sin because they have a Lord who has already purified for himself his own special people. That's not earning anything. That's people acting on that purification which has already worked in their lives. It's people becoming what they are, living out the grace of God in their lives. Because this is the case, Peter points out to believers that our own wanting and acting to make life pure is once again God in his kindness and goodness to us showing us by our own actions that his Holy Spirit is working in our hearts right now. Now notice one last thing about this verse. Coming back to our verse, verse 22, we read, Since you have purified your souls. Note that purifying our souls is seen as something that's already finished. It's not, oh, I've watched porn again, or oh, I've already said, I've said something nasty to my brother and sister again. I need to purify my soul. No, it's something that has already been done in Christ. You have purified your souls in Christ by leaning on Him alone, and your repentance in those actions is your turning to Christ after you've sinned in these ways is an expression of becoming what you are. Your repentance and your grief over your sin, turning to God for purification, is an outward picture of what's already bought for us by Jesus. This is a great comfort for us. We don't need to come before God time and time again fearing that somehow Christ's purifying work has been washed away and that we are dirty once again before God. We don't need to come to him saying, you'll forgive me as soon as I wash myself one more time just to make sure that I'm clean. No, you come before him in faith saying, I am a Christian by faith in Christ. I have been born again into a new family and a new life. My repentance and my turning in faith is working as an obedient and faithful child by the power of the Spirit who lives in me to become pure and holy, to fight for purity and holiness just as you are holy. But I thank you, Father, that you already see me as pure and holy in Christ. That you already see me as clean and whiter whiter than snow for his sake. This is something that's done in the past. And I can rest on that sacrifice offered once and for all so I can be accepted in your presence even now and come to you to ask you to wash me clean and set me on the right path Again, this brings us to our second point. So having set the foundation 
of that rebirth which is worked in us and seeing that it's by the power of God and by the work of the Spirit that we're born again, we're then led to ask, how are we brought to this point of rebirth? The answer that Peter gives is that we are born again through the Word of God. And Peter finds that absolutely incredible. All flesh is like grass, he writes. There is nothing that gives us any standing of ourselves in the light of God. Yes, there is glory to man. We are able to make great achievements that make us stand out from each other. People have worked to build great cathedrals, monuments, and spiritual works of art. And men and women have been able to work powerfully as saints in the kingdom of God through the ages. But these are not the instruments which bring us before God. Our glory is not the instrument that brings us before God. They're not seen as particularly magnificent in comparison with the eternal works of God. They're here today and tomorrow are gone. Yes, mankind has glory and Peter's willing to accept that. But in case humanity gets too full of itself, thinking that it can ride to heaven on this glory, he immediately follows up with, the glory of man is as the flowers of the grass. The grass withers and its flowers fall away. Even our best works are not of much account in comparison with the glorious works of God. Flesh fails, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And that is why we needed to be born again, born through the living and enduring Word of God. This, says Peter, is the Word that was preached to you. This Word is truth. And this is what brings us full circle in our text again. We read in verse 22, you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. God's Word is truth. It's not something that changes from one culture to another or from one century to another. It's living meaning. It's living, meaning it applies in a real way to every time and place. It's abiding, meaning that it remains the same. God's truth is truth yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We live in a world today in which truth is seen as relative. It's not something new. Pontius Pilate himself famously said to Jesus, what is truth? To suggest that the truth is not absolute or is not true is one of the devil's oldest tricks in the book. As the father of lies, he delights in encouraging the idea that the truth is just your truth and so you shouldn't impose it on those around you. It's a common theme of our culture today. To lay a claim to having the truth is seen as intolerant. Even worse, to suggest that everyone not having your truth is going to hell is seen as shockingly arrogant. But what does Peter say here? It's not arrogance, but it's obedience. It's obedience to a truth that's beautiful beyond measure. Romans 10 verse 13 shows us the reason for the beauty of the truth of the gospel. 
It says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. When we call on the Lord God in the name of Jesus Christ and in his power, we are being obedient to that truth, the only truth. Jesus Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and resting on his work alone saves us. So how do we put this into an understandable picture? How do we apply this in our lives? When someone's baby is sick and they're asking for help, you moms wouldn't hesitate to recommend a good doctor. If you saw someone's baby was deathly ill and they weren't taking notice of it, you wouldn't just shrug your shoulders. You would let them know. And if they didn't believe you right away, you would try to convince them. Because you know the truth of their baby's illness and you know the truth of the doctor's abilities to help cure that baby. The stakes here are even higher. We're not just talking sickness in the physical body. We're talking about the truth of sin which causes death. We're talking about the rescue of the soul and we're talking about a freely offered eternal reward. And there are people who don't know it. Romans 10 verse 14 How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? We live in a world where there are people who genuinely have not heard the truth of the gospel. There are those in our community around us who have heard some version of biblical teaching, but who have never really grasped the idea of being completely lost in sin before a holy and mighty God. They don't understand the need to be born again by the Spirit of God. The truth is the instrument that we can bring to bear on their lives. The Word of God is the tool that the Holy Spirit uses to work rebirth in the hearts of those around us. And that truth is what Peter has been laying out very methodically up to this point. The promise of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. When we are obedient to the truth ourselves, and when we are sharing the truth to those around, we are hearing and we are confessing the fact that we have been saved through faith. And in thankfulness, we are called to respond as obedient children. There are those who have not heard and those who do not fully understand this message. And from those who are genuinely seeking, we shouldn't shy away. Rather, let us respond to them, knowing that we're holding on to the truth. As we read in Romans 1 verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And this brings us to our third point. We give all glory to God for our rebirth. Nothing we can do can add to the salvation that he works out in our lives. All of it is a gift from his grace. To show the world that this truth is real, we need to be convicted of it in our own lives. 
But not only do we need to be convicted of the truth, we are called to live it out in thankfulness. After all, how can we testify to the truth of something if we don't believe in it ourselves enough to hold fast to it and act upon it? But we do believe in it. And that belief comes out in our love. And that love, Peter teaches, begins with the church. First of all, he says, the purification of our souls is grounded in what is called a sincere love for the brethren. Jesus Christ himself said, love one another as I have loved you. John 13, verse 34 to 35. If we all recognize that we are in the state that Peter describes, that we're completely dependent on the grace of God, that we're completely dependent on his mercy, then we know that we're not better than the next person. We're not more worthy than someone else who is in the pew beside us, even if they are a lot more broken than we are. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. All sinners are equal before Jesus Christ because all sinners are equally 100% in need of his grace and unable to supply their own being right before God. How can we hold it against the person who is beside us, even if they treated us poorly, if we recognize that we ourselves treated Christ much worse? How can we look down on them, seeing them in a more broken condition than ourselves, if we recognize that their biggest need is not our condemnation, but their biggest need is that same grace that was so richly poured out on us despite our sin? Peter calls us here not to have our response be a smackdown on those who are around us, even though they may irritate or hurt us here in the church, but rather showing a sincere love for the brethren. The word that's used for this kind of love is the Greek word Philadelphia. You know the city that's called the city of brotherly love? There's a reason for that. It's named after this very same Greek word. Philadelphia. It's having a mutual affection, a sense of love that you would find with brothers and sisters in a harmonious family. You look out for each other in love. You care for each other. You provide for each other. And you do this sincerely. Not just for an outward show and not just to check off a box in being a Christian, but because we're living out the gospel that's imprinted on our hearts. This is something that we're blessed to be doing in this church and something that we pray would continue to grow as our congregation grows. To be able to love one another and serve one another effectively. But more than that, that love which begins as Philadelphia love grows to what Peter here calls agape love. Love one another fervently from the heart, Peter writes. And the word that's used there for that love is agape. Agape is the word, is the love that is spoken of in the famous passage, 1 Corinthians 13. It's a love that transcends human love and earthly bonds. 
It's not a simple romantic love for another person, but it's a love that is divine. It's a love that is shown to us by God himself. So what does this kind of love look like? Love is patient and kind, he writes in 1 Corinthians 13. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. The greatest of these is love. This is living out the gospel message. This is holding to the truth. Do we want to show the world that we, in the Owen Sound Canadian Reformed Church, hold to the truth? We can begin here. Begin by recognizing our need for a Savior. Begin by recognizing our fellow brothers and sisters in the church as being equally needing of that same Savior. And respond to that need in love. And here we come a full circle again. Because we can't do this on our own. Like we saw before, this is a divine love. But it's what we are offered as those who are born again. We love because Jesus Christ first loved us. And it's only with his love within us that we will be able to love those around as he first loved us. It's only ever and always him that we rest in. It started with him and it will end with him. Beloved, as we look to live out that promise of the gospel, let's first remember who we owe everything to. Then let us hold fast to the truth that he shows us. And in all of that, let us respond in thankfulness then, acting, holding fast to the truth that allows us to do so. Because we have been born again. Amen.